We left off last week with Peter cutting off the high priest's servant's Malchus, his ear. Then Jesus telling him to put his sword away, reminding Peter that, that he is destined to drink the cup of wrath that's waiting for him at the cross. In this morning's passage, Jesus is put on trial. They've arrested him. Now the trial begins, and they're trying to find fault in him so that they can justify putting him to death. And I want you to think about how long would it take for a group of people to interrogate you and find fault? Five minutes of questioning? Five seconds? It's not too long, right? I mean, here Jesus is interrogated by several people, and at the end of the day, he is exactly who he claimed to be, the perfect son of God. One thing that you and I, that that we all have in common, is that we have this dirty past. Do you remember that that time when somebody could say, you know, hey, do you remember when? And you'd say, yeah, 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 please, just not here, be quiet. I don't want to talk about it. We, we all have that kind of past, right? And listen, I'm not even talking about before we were Christians. I, I'm even talking about once you've become a Christian, we have all done some really dumb things or had some really strange thoughts that we all regret. Jesus doesn't have this kind of story. The disciples could not say, hey, Jesus, you remember that time when there's nothing. There's no dirt on Jesus. Today, my aim is for you to see the perfect Passover lamb right here in, in our passage this morning. The lamb without blemish, being in complete control, boldly and willingly going to his death. So let's pray together, and then we're going to dive into the rest of chapter 18. So let's, let's pray. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see the beauty of this passage. I I pray that that we would see uh, your kindness, how you died in our place, how we were the criminals, and yet you died for us. Lord, I pray that... uh, that we be encouraged by how you forgive us even when we completely and worldly mess up. And you're there to pick us up, to wipe us off, and to send us back out on mission. So may we be so encouraged by this passage this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we went through the first 11 verses last week, so let's pick up in verse 12 this morning. Verse 12 says this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So Annas, he had been the high priest before Caiaphas served in this role. But the people still look to Annas as maybe this high priest emeritus. They still respected him. And we know this because the trial, this is where the trial begins. It begins with him. He technically holds zero power, 
um, from Rome, but the Jews start the trial first with Annas. Caiaphas was the one who, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and the crowds began to follow Jesus, Caiaphas was the one who said that it is better that if one man would die for the nation. So that's when he began to come up with this scheme to kill Jesus. What he meant was that if the Jews didn't do something quickly to stop Jesus from gaining this, this massive following, then Rome was going to come in to kill them all. So he thinks, let's just kill Jesus so we all don't have to die. And no truer words have been spoken. Jesus will, in fact, die so that the nations won't have to die. So the first interrogation is about underway. And in verse 15, we see that Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And so now we're back to John's classic style of writing. Unlike last week, when John gave us the specific name of the high priest um, servant, Malchus, now we're back to John speaking in these generalities. We, we technically don't know who this other disciple is. He's never identified. Historically, this disciple has um, been identified as the author John, but we don't know this for sure. There's a few reasons why scholars believe this is to be John. First, um, a little later in this gospel, John will use this same title, another disciple, and by the greater context of that passage, we know that the other disciple is referring to John. So similar title could be, similar result could be John again. Second reason, um, last week, we, John named the high priest's servant by name, where the other gospels do not give the servant's name. And as we keep reading, we will see that this other disciple has a relationship with the high priest. We see here in this verse that the high priest knew this other disciple. So it would make sense that, you know, knowing Malchus by name, he has a relationship, maybe it's John. Now, others have argued against this being John because why in the world would this high priest, who's, you know, around a lot of royalty, why would he know a fisherman like John? I don't know. Maybe he liked fish and bought fish from John. We just don't know. But my best guess is I, I think this seems to be like John. But we cannot know this with any certainty. But Simon Peter followed Jesus. So did the other, another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, see just how he's repeating this? I mean, it's, it's like this sense like John is letting you know it's him. It's kind of what John does. Um, the classic one is a little later when he talks about this other disciple who outruns Peter. Like, why would you say that? It's like, why do we need to know that you outran Peter other than it was probably you? Um, so this he was known to the high priest. He went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Notice how this girl framed the question. She asks it in the negative. It's like when someone looks at your lunch and maybe with like a, a better than you voice, they say, 
you're not going to eat that, are you? Or it's like when you come downstairs ready to take your wife out to a, on a nice date, and she says, you're not going to wear that, are you? This, of course not. Why, why would you think I'm going to wear the clothes that I have on? That's ridiculous. The servant girl frames the question in such a way where it would be an insult or disgrace to be a follower of Jesus. You are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Who, me? No, no way. Do you remember back in chapter 13? Jesus gathers his disciples around the table to have the Passover meal. This is where he begins to institute the Lord's Supper, which we get to take of this morning. Jesus informs his disciples in John 13 that one of them is going to betray him. Then Jesus says that he's about to leave, and where he goes, they're not able to come. So he was referring to his death. But Peter says in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not grow till you have denied me three times. You are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter replies, I am not. Strike one. Verse 18. Now the servants and officers have made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now John includes this very specific detail about the type of fire. Um, and the reason they, he includes it here is that it's because it was cold. And I think John is speaking very literally about the temperature outside that morning. Early spring mornings would still have that coolness in the air. But I also think John is speaking figuratively here about the cold spiritual condition at the high priest's house. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them. They know what I've said. Now remember, the high priest here, this is referring to Annas. Even though he's not officially the high priest, the Jews look to him as that. Jesus' point here is if Annas really wanted evidence about what Jesus had been teaching, there were plenty, plenty of witnesses um, of what Jesus had been teaching. Jesus is essentially calling out Annas without specifically calling out this high priest for not properly conducting a trial. According to Jewish law, there had to be witnesses in order to bring a charge against someone, and Annas at this point has none. Notice how even this other disciple is close by that Annas knew, um, and yet he doesn't bring him in at all. You know, if it was John, why wouldn't he bring in John? John, tell me, I, I've known you for years, whether it's 
a relative is how John knows him, or maybe it was because he bought fish from John. John, I've known you for years. I think you're a trustworthy man. Who, who is this Jesus? Doesn't do any of this. Doesn't bring in his other disciple. It all just seems a little too fishy here. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing back struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I have said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? The self-control of Jesus, both physically and verbally here, is amazing. He could have rightly said, is this how you treat the great high priest? Or he could have just called down a legion of angels and just whooped up on that dude. This is why it's good that we're not God, right? And once again, the striking of Jesus did not follow Jewish law. Jesus had not been found guilty, so this officer legally was not allowed to strike him. Verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Strike two. Peter's quickly behind in the count. They take Jesus from Anna's house to Caiaphas' house, which is probably just next door. His father-in-law, they kind of live with their families. So this is probably just next door. Um, verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Strike three. Peter's out. But thankfully, this is not Peter's last at bat. And before we are too harsh on Peter for this denial, remember the pressure he's under. He probably still has adrenaline pumping through his body from that garden scene. He's probably not thinking clearly. I think it's important that we distinguish between uh, denying as Peter did and betraying as Judas did. Judas and Peter are not the same. Do not allow Satan to convince you that your denials make you into a Judas. Peter will be won back to the faith. He will be restored and fully committed to Christ. If Peter can be so greatly used by God after he denied Christ three times, and so can you. Now, when you read this account in all four Gospels, you get a deeper picture of Peter's denial. In Mark's Gospel, Peter gives a double denial to the first question. He says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Then uh, the third time he's questioned about knowing Jesus, Mark's Gospel says that Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak, and immediately the rooster crowed. I mean, this could be like a, I swear on my life that I don't know this man. Luke's gospel, it's the most emotionally intense 
account out of all the Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, once Peter denied Jesus the third time, the rooster crows, then Jesus turns and looks at Peter. Then this is when Peter remembers what Jesus had said to him about denying him three times, the rooster crowing. Then Luke's account says that he went out and wept bitterly. I mean, could you imagine denying knowing Jesus and then Jesus turning and looking right into your face? Ah. And Peter just lost it. He wept bitterly. Have you been there before? Jesus, I will do anything for you. That's what, that's what um, Peter said in chapter 13. I will lay down my life for you, Lord. Jesus said, will you, will you, Peter? If you ever said, Lord, I will do anything for you, and then you completely blow it. It's amazing how one week we're ready to lay down our lives for Jesus and then the next were complete disappointment. Peter went out and wept bitterly, but he didn't stay there. See, both Peter and Judas have regret for what they have done, but how they handled that regret was completely different. And it's in this moment when we need to remember that there's a huge difference between what Peter did and what Judas did. Peter goes on to repent, to reconcile with Christ, where Judas never does. Judas never recovered from betraying Christ. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. They haven't cared one lick about following Jewish law but now, all of a sudden, look at what they're concerned about. They wouldn't enter the governor's headquarters because that would make them unclean. And if they were unclean, then they couldn't eat the Passover meal. Now, the background to this, is, I think it's important. Pilate is, is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He served Rome as governor of Judea. Remember, Rome was in control of all of Israel. And as a reminder of this, Rome would have Roman soldiers all around the city, you know, on the streets. They would have political officials living throughout Israel, and one of those officials is this man named Pilate. He was a governor of Judea. And then you have these religious leaders. Behind closed doors, they didn't really care about following Jewish laws. We see that. They didn't care about what the Torah said about a man being found guilty about how a trial should be um, um, uh, followed through. But here, all of a sudden, Jewish law, now that it was in public eye, you know, they straightened up. They, they made sure that they were following Jewish purity laws. This behavior is something that Jesus had confronted the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders before. In Matthew 23, verse 25, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, 
First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. See, the Pharisees love to look great on the outside. They wanted people to recognize them and make much of them, and they would destroy anything or anyone who would get in their way. They cared more about what man thought of them and less about what God thought of them. Sadly, this may be like a lot of your church experience. People dressing really nice, looking religious on the outside, but will be the first ones to talk about you behind your backs. We must be careful to not allow our external acts of obedience to God, things like going to church, being baptized, being a good church member, serving on a team or a committee, so that we can hide the truth of our internal filthy hearts. Our hearts are sick, and no amount of religion will make them right before a holy and righteous God. God cares more about your heart, what you look like on the inside, than how you're dressed this morning. Pilate was too dirty for them to touch, but notice that they were fine with Pilate doing their dirty work. Let's keep reading. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. When Pilate, Pilate's asking, you know, wh- why do you bring this man to me? Ironically, this is the first time we see someone following um, the Jewish due process And it just so happens to be a Gentile, not even a Jew. And their response to Pilate is, come on, don't don't you trust us? I mean, why would we bring him all the way over here to you if he wasn't guilty? I mean, surely that itself shows his guilt. Verse 31, Pilate essentially said to them, if he's guilty, then take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, we can see just how serious this all has become. Notice what the Jews feel should be the penalty for Jesus' quote-unquote crime. Did you see that? It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That's what they want to happen here. It's not, you know, a fine. It's not, you know, five years in jail. They want him to put to death. Here's a man who these religious leaders can't even tell Pilate what he's done wrong, and they want to punish him to death. Then John gives this comment about this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Okay, so let me explain what's going on here. According to Jewish law, the Jews were allowed to stone a criminal to death. You can see this in the Old Testament. Read the Torah. You'll see that Jews were allowed to stone to death. But since they're under Roman rule, these stonings had to be approved by Rome. But the Old Testament had prophesied that the Messiah would die on a cross. But the Jews didn't practice crucifixion. You see how this is, there's a little bit of a problem here. 
This is how Yahweh was going to reconcile these two competing issues. The Jews were going to get their death penalty that they so desired, and it would also be by crucifixion as the Old Testament had predicted. So here Jesus is working all this out. So I want you to see here that he is in complete control, even of the mode of his death. Jesus would not be stoned for our sins. Our sins will be laid upon his shoulders, taken to the cross. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. At this point, Pilate feels like maybe he's gotten somewhere like, aha, I gotcha. But Pilate misunderstands. Jesus is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. Meaning his kingdom is not a political threat to Rome. That's what the Jews are trying to get Pilate to think. Like, hey, this guy's going to stir it up. He's going to cause a lot of trouble. It's going to be this um, uh, revolution. You need to put him to death. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom's not of this world. You don't have anything to worry about. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born for this purpose. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom full of weapons with a palace like Pilate's. Instead, he has a kingdom of truth. Jesus says, the reason I was born and came into the world is to bear witness to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth will listen to me. And then we hear a question asked that the answer to this question is just as needed for our day, if not maybe more. What is truth? There's a battle today for truth. If you try to claim today that there's absolute truth, truth that everyone should believe and follow, you will probably be considered as intolerant and judgmental. But here's the irony of it all. Every single person in the entire world believes in an absolute truth. Those that disagree with an absolute truth, the moment they say there is no such thing as an absolute truth, guess what type of claim that they just made? They made an absolute statement of truth. If someone says there's no such thing as an absolute truth, then your reply should be, if there is no absolute truth, how can you know that to be true? See, one of the problems when you live in a culture that does not believe in absolute truth is the culture just becomes complete chaos and a free-for-all. We basically are living in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, it takes place after the Israelites, they left Egypt. 
And they began to enter the promised land, um, but before Israel had a physical king. The book of Judges said that the people did what was right in their own eyes. That is where we are today. We are living in a world where people do what's right in their own eyes. If it feels good to you, then it's okay. How dare you tell me what I can do or who I can love? The death of absolute truth has forced us to live in a world where every opinion is supposed to be shown the same respect. We're supposed to be tolerant of different worldviews. But what often happens in this postmodern way of thinking is those who make any universal claim of truth, they're met with intolerance. This is what we're seeing in our culture today. Christians are told to be tolerant of others' beliefs, but the moment a Christian makes some absolute claim about heaven or hell or about the exclusivity of Christ, about abortion, about LGBT issues, then Christians are labeled as intolerant and judgmental. A postmodern culture does not understand absolute truth. Truth is narrow by definition. But today you will hear phrases like, that might be true for you, but not for me, or you do your truth, or you just hear the phrase, your truth. Like that there's truth for all of us. We have our own little truths. Jesus said it was his purpose to come and bear witness to the truth. Earlier, he said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So what he's saying here, he's saying that he is the source of all truth. If you want to know what is true, what is right, then we need to look to him. Jesus makes these exclusive claims where he is the only way that someone can enter into heaven. If this is true then you could see why the enemy would want to deceive us about absolute truth. So what happens next? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 38. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out, again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. John's account, it doesn't include, there, there's a quick visit to King Herod. King Herod, King Herod doesn't find any um, fault in Jesus either, except for maybe King Herod thinks he's, he's weak. Um, and Herod and his men begin to mock Jesus. This is when they dress him up to look like a king. They send him back to Pilate. This entire trial should be thrown out of court. I mean, it's so badly butchered, it makes no sense other than that God has ordained it to be. That's the only way you can make sense of this whole thing. People who cared so much about every little law and rule completely blow this. I mean, how do you go in one moment from being released by Pilate? He says, I found nothing wrong here. Shall I let him go? He found no guilt in the man to now being sentenced to death on a cross. It would be like you going to court for jaywalking, being found innocent, 
and then receive the electric chair. Apart from the sovereignty of God, this trial makes no sense at all. So now what do we do with this passage? What does this passage teach us about God? What does it teach us about man? Let's start with what it teaches us about God. It shows us that God is in complete control of every single detail. And if that's true, then we don't have to freak out and be all anxious and worried about our day-to-day things. Jesus is even in control of the mode of his death. He should have been stoned by Jewish law, but instead he's crucified by Roman law. We also see that Jesus is the perfect substitution for our sins. We see this in the story of Barabbas. Barabbas was the one that deserved the penalty of death. He deserved the cross. Yet, he is set free, and Jesus dies in his place. That is a picture for us. We should have been the ones who died. Your sin deserved death, punishment from a holy God, but God took the punishment for you. So we see that going on here. We're also reminded that God can restore our brokenness. Even when you completely blow it like Peter, God can fully restore you. And maybe that's what some of you need to hear this morning. Maybe you come in this morning limping because you had a really bad week. And maybe you came in this morning doubting, could God really love you? Could you be restored? You had some, really, you had some things going in your life that were working really well. You saw God at work, and then you completely just blew it. And now, can I ever have that back again? And I want to tell you, you can. Peter repents, trusts in Christ, and goes on to do incredible things. I mean, the Bible you're holding, there's a couple books written by him. This was a man who denied him to his face. Remember, I don't, I don't know him, and Jesus looks at him. You can be restored, okay? Don't believe the whispers from Satan that you can't. God can restore you. I don't care what you've done. You can be restored. Now, what does this passage teach us about man? That we can care way too much what others think of us. The high priest and the other religious leaders, they were so concerned about how others viewed them. They cared so much about their power and their positions. They were willing to lie and deceive in order to kill Jesus, to protect how others would view them. Then he went picking and choosing whatever laws they wanted to obey, the laws that best served them, then everyone should obey these. How convenient. But the laws that might expose our sinful hearts, well, let's just pretend like those don't exist. Are you guilty of the same thing? Do you pick and choose which parts of the Bible you want to obey? Or do you allow the Bible to be your ultimate source of truth? And authority. Or maybe this passage exposes that you have a fear of man. Maybe you identify with maybe what Peter was struggling with. 
You love Jesus on Sunday mornings when you're all gathered with your other believing friends. But when you go to work tomorrow, when it gets a little uncomfortable identifying with Jesus, when they ask, do you know this man? But however you blow it, however you disappoint, please know that you have not out the grace of God. There's room for you at the cross. When Christ died on the cross for your sins, he did not just die for your past sins. He also died for your future sins. So when you fall, not if, but when you fall, confess, repent, and believe that the blood of Christ covers you. This morning, we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And there's going to be a tangible demonstration of his forgiveness for you. You're all invited to participate. If you're a believer, if, you're a, a, if you'd call yourself a Christian, then you're invited to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. You're going to receive um, two cups stacked together. The bottom cup has a little piece of bread, um, which represents his body that was broken. So this is John 13, where Jesus is instructing his disciples of this, what he, what he wants them to do. From now on, instead of the Passover meal, I want you to, to do this in remembrance of me, not just of what God has done for you in the past, but also now. So this bread is broken to represent Christ's body um, that was broken. And then he tells them to take a drink of the cup, and the cup represents um, um, his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so you get to come this morning, and as you look at those two elements, both cups, I want you to reflect on what Christ has done for you. That even though that you deny him in so many ways, maybe you turn your back on him, maybe you have a fear of man, maybe you can put other things before Christ, Christ is willing to take you back. All it takes is humbling of your heart to say, Lord, please forgive me, just like Peter. Lord, I really messed up this time. Will you please take me back? That's what this cup forces you to do. It forces you to examine yourself, to repent, to come with a fresh, clean, pure heart before God. So whenever you're ready, you come. We'll come both outside aisles, um, and you come when you're ready. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would just even maybe reveal sin right now that we um, haven't even thought of that you'd maybe open up some door, some closet in our heart that's just full of sin. It's kind of been hiding. And I pray that you would just open the door, reveal to us who we really are, like deep down, not on the outside, but deep down, those things we think about, maybe the... um, hate that we have deep down inside or unforgiveness. Lord, may you just reveal those things. We want to be right with you. So I pray that we would come rightly to the table, that we would be um, people of confession. So we thank you for um, laying down your life for us so that we may have life and life to the fullest. So Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.
You come when you're ready.